I'd like to invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. If you are using the Pew Bible in front of you this morning, that's awesome. We love that. Um, You can find Philippians chapter 3 on page 1042. And as always, uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word yourself at home, um, you are more than welcome to take that copy with you this morning uh, so that you can have a copy of God's Word for you at home to continue reading. But we are going to be uh, in the book of Philippians this morning, chapter 3, verses 10, uh, chapter 10, chapter 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 9. I would ask you to please stand once again as we read those verses this morning. Paul writes, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but that but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then... My dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. A few years ago, Uh, The church uh, organized a camping trip, a father-son camping trip. And so we set out here from the church to go to wild and wonderful West Virginia. We found some spot, I think it was somewhere along the CNO Canal, out kind of on, on the panhandle, but basically out away from everything else you could imagine. All of civilization was just fading in the background, and we found this uh, we went up on this, this, this hill somewhere in the foothills of some mountain somewhere, and we found a field surrounded by woods, and we pitched our tents. We, we camped out there. And I will never forget the sight of that first night camping with that group. Uh, I had been camping many different times, off and on, different settings, 
Uh, but I had never, I guess, never been to a place like this because we looked up and not unlike the, the photo used in our, our sermon uh, title here this morning, uh, the sky looked a lot like that. And I had never seen that many stars in my life. I had looked up at the night sky from cities, from suburbs, from all kinds of different places, but not quite like that. So what was the difference between that night sky there in the woods, apart from anything else, and the night skies I had seen before all my life. Light pollution, right? Just the idea that all these other sources of light competing for the, the stars in the sky, they weren't present. We were truly out in the darkness, and because of the darkness, the lights of all those stars shone brightly. There was a contrast, a clear, distinct contrast between the the darkness that surrounded us and the light of all those stars. Last week, Pastor Jason from earlier in Philippians talked to us about, as citizens of heaven, being lights in the world. And we're going to continue that this morning, delving deeper into Philippians chapters 3 and 4. And as we do so, we're going to see that, yes, we do live in a dark world. But that if we will follow Christ, if we will pursue Christ, then he will enable us to shine even more brightly in the world that surrounds us. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning we ask that you would indeed speak to us from your word as we have just sung about. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to set aside uh, the concerns, perhaps worries even, that, that weigh us down. Lord, that you will enable us to, just for these next few moments, to turn our full attention to your servant Paul and his words recorded for us in the third and fourth chapters of Philippians. Lord, we know that you did not just lead him to write those words to his first readers. We know they were intended for them, of course. But Lord, we know that these words have been preserved for our benefit and blessing as well. And so we ask, Lord, that you would now bless us with understanding and power to apply what he is going to share with us this morning as you have inspired him to do so. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So beginning in verses 10 through 17, Paul opens our passage this morning uh, by giving us an apostle's humble light. This was an extraordinary gesture on his part, particularly when you remember who was writing these words to the believers in Philippi. This is who was writing uh, these words. He had just reminded them in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3 of his credentials, of his resume, if you will. He was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, right on schedule, exactly as the Lord command, exactly as Jesus himself was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of, he was of Israel through the tribe of Benjamin. So he had that pedigree. He had that heritage. More than that, he was a Pharisee, meaning that he was a strict adherent of the law. And he was a zealous persecutor of the church. He had gone so far as to take up the mantle, the obligation to defend the faith from these, these, this sect uh, that was following this Nazarene. He himself later, uh, this letter is being written late in his life and ministry. And so when he writes these words, he's already planted many churches. He's gone on several missionary journeys throughout the region. He had written letters that would become scripture and was, when penning these words, writing scripture again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul was hardcore. He had been arrested, beaten, driven out of more towns and synagogues than he could remember. He was legit. If anyone had bragging rights, if anyone could pull rank and and claim superiority, it was Paul. But that's the point. Here, he does the opposite. This is not the humble brag of some holier than thou. This was the honest and open encouragement of a shepherd who loved the sheep and desired them to join him in his pursuit of the only one who matters, Jesus Verses 10 and 11, we see his goal. His goal was to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. 
the knowledge Paul desired was not merely, merely intellectual. It wasn't limited to facts and figures and abstract concepts. He longed for the deepest possible personal and intimate knowledge of the person of Christ. This included the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the brotherhood or bonding that came from enduring suffering, much as Paul's Lord and Master had undergone. Paul was in pursuit of the power of Christ's return, and the way to that power was through the apparent powerlessness of suffering. By his personal experience, Paul had learned a hard lesson. As John MacArthur puts it, the deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to him. Has that been your experience? I know it's been mine. No one should seek suffering. Such a thing is unhealthy, and Paul isn't saying so here. But many Christians actually do the opposite. They avoid suffering any way they can. Some even expect God to insulate them from suffering. But Paul reminds us that suffering, and hear me, suffering for Christ, not for wrongdoing, not for being obnoxious, but suffering for Christ provides a forge that God often uses to shape and transform us into the likeness of Christ. And that's a very good thing. So good that it ultimately makes whatever we go through worth it. Now, how can Paul say this? Is this some kind of cruel joke? No, absolutely not. Remember, he is after the power of Christ's resurrection. And suffering is the way, or at least it's the most effective way, to know that power. And the power and guarantee of resurrection to eternal life is what makes suffering worthwhile. So just in case you're concerned about the way Paul Paul phrases this in verse 11, the way that's rendered in English, I want to take a look at that for a moment. There Paul writes, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now let me reread that that section again with a different emphasis on the syllables, okay? Assuming I will reach, I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear that? He really is sure about this, regardless of the, 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 the wavering you may think you're hearing there. There's two words that, that throw us off the scent of what Paul's trying to say here. The first is the word assuming, at least as it's used in the Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation I'm primarily, primarily using today. So he says, assuming that I will... Well, what does he mean by assuming? There's other translations that do a little bit better job of rendering this. Uh, one, uh, the New Living Translation says, uh, one way or another. In other words, it says, sharing in his death so that one way or another. But I like the New American Standard best when it comes to this particular portion of this verse. It says, being conformed to his death in order that. So, I'm not exactly sure what the decision process was for the CSB to, to use the word assuming. But don't be thrown off by that. What Paul is really saying here is he's saying being conformed to the death of Christ. In other words, assuming that or putting that as the prerequisite, that's happening in order that um, he can reach the the resurrection. So there's, there's that. And then there's this word somehow, that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Is, is Paul saying that? I'm not sure. Absolutely not. Philippians, remember, is, is probably one of Paul's last letters. And he had already written both the Thessalonian and Corinthian letters, both letters to both churches. Paul was very certain about the resurrection promised to all believers. He knew that that resurrection was promised to himself because of his faith in Christ. What was open, what seems to be an open question in his mind his, his speculation, if anything, was more so about whether he would, how he would experience that resurrection. In other words, it's almost like Paul was kind of saying, I wonder how I'm going to get to experience that. Because, again, reflecting on those letters to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, there were a couple of ways it could happen. He knew he could experience the resurrection from among the living. 
as he had written to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, get, be caught up in the air. That could be the way. Or he could be, as he says here, from among the dead, because he had taught all about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul was very sure about the resurrection. It was perhaps a question of which way he would experience it, but the basis of it, the foundation of his confidence, was the fact that because he had shared in the death of Christ, that he knew he would share in the resurrection of Christ. And that, by the way, is something that all of us can, can take advantage of and, and be assured of. Uh, we experience the death of Christ by putting our faith in him and saying, effectively, Lord, I want your death to count for and take the punishment for my sins. So whenever you reach that point in your life where you repented of your sins and you put your trust in Christ, that was the moment that, death, that the death of Christ counted for you and covered your sins. So Paul is saying, having done that, having come through the death of Christ, we can all expect the resurrection of Christ. Now, for some reason, when I came to this verse, I started to picture it. You know, thinking about him kind of wondering, okay, am I, am I going to have the resurrection from the living or, or from among the dead? I, I don't want to be you know, inappropriate about this at all, but certainly not disrespectful, but can you imagine? I, I, I would almost love to be kind of nearby wherever, I know Paul, where Paul's supposed to be resting, but wherever his, his remains are, can you imagine that moment where he pops up and he, he, his resurrected body comes together and he finally experiences the moment that he was writing about right here in this verse. The elation, the joy, the exaltation of that moment of realizing all the promises that he had been sharing with his readers and with us all those, all those centuries ago. I just, it, that captured my imagination for a moment when I was thinking about that. But here in verses 10 through 17, Paul humbly raises his light as an apostle so that other believers have it as an example to follow. In that spirit, Paul tells his readers and us that the way to the resurrection is through the fellowship of his, that is Christ's, sufferings. As it was for Jesus, who suffered before and through the cross, before being resurrected in glory, so it is for all those who, like Paul, seek to follow their Lord and Savior. If it was true for Jesus, it's going to be true for us. In verse 12, Paul continues to encourage us by setting his example before us. Again, if anyone could have claimed, claimed to have made it, to have arrived, it would have been him. But thankfully, he honestly reveals that he has not yet reached his goal, even after decades of following Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, this should be encouraging to you. Now, I, I realize some of us may think, really? After decades of following Christ, he hasn't gotten it perfect yet? Then where's the hope for me? Well, that one I can answer with great assurance. Your hope is the same as Paul's hope, Christ. Jesus is your hope, just like he was Paul's. As he points out regarding himself, our confidence is not in taking hold of Christ, not in us doing that, but in the fact that first, Christ took a hold of us. You see, our, our salvation, our assurance of resurrection is not based on what we've done for the Lord lately. It's not based upon our performance. It's based upon Christ's perfection. His righteousness is given to us. And so we can rest in the assurance of that. Paul, in this passage at least, never, never held up his own perfection. Christ is the only one who is perfect. Paul humbly submitted his own single-minded pursuit of Christ as a model for us to follow. I really appreciate how John MacArthur lays, out, lays this out for us. Quoting from his commentary on Philippians, he said, he said Paul, uh, had he been perfect, Paul would not have been an example believers could follow. We need to follow someone who is not perfect so we can see how to overcome our imperfections. Someone who can show us how to handle the struggles of life, its disappointments, and its trials. Someone who can show us how to handle pride, resist temptation, and put sin to death. Christ is the perfect standard, model, and pattern for Christ to emulate. But Christ never pursued per perfection. He, was, he has always been perfect. 
Paul was a fellow traveler on the path toward the unattainable spiritual perfection and thus a model for believers to follow. He modeled virtue, morality, overcoming the flesh, victory over temptation, worship, service to God, patient endurance of suffering, handling possessions, and handling relationships. Moving beyond himself, Paul commanded the Philippians also to observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So how refreshing it is to hear that the Apostle Paul was a work in progress like you and like me. Perfect, as Paul uses the word in verse 12, is an understandable choice to render the Greek behind the, the English. Uh, but the, eye of, the idea of teleo is more of completeness, completeness, maturity, than it is of the way we use the word perfect. In other words, it wasn't about the flawlessness. It was about the completion that, that was taking place. Paul is explicitly telling the Philippian believers that he is not there yet, but by making every effort to take hold of his goal to know Christ completely, he is showing us that we too should give everything away to have the treasure that is in Christ. Now, there were times in Paul's other letters that he would come across quite bold and almost arrogant, but this was not one of those times. Paul had plumbed the depths of self-righteousness through impeccable law-keeping and perfect heritage, and yet he still found that life lacking. His best fell short of God's glory like everyone else. In fact, Paul's teaching us here in verse 13 uh, to forget what is behind and to reach forward to what is ahead. That is, the finish line of eternity where we will finally and fully become like our beloved Savior. Paul had done this not by removing or ignoring the past, but by letting go of it. We know Paul's memory is still intact because he recited his resume just a few verses earlier. Forgetting here refers to letting go of everything but Christ. His past failures, gone. His past successes, discarded like garbage. Neither could impede his progress any longer. Paul offers us his example of single-minded focus on Christ. Jesus is the prize. We read of heaven that there are no more tears, that there's no more night, there's no more pain, or we have reunion with loved ones, that we will have unresolved questions answered. All of those things are wonderful, and they are true, and they will be realized one day in eternity but they pale in comparison with Christ. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Paul wanted to remind the Philippians that earthly prizes do not last. Eternal prizes do. He said as much to the Corinthians years earlier in chapter 9, verse 25 of that letter. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Again, returning to our text, verse 15, therefore, Paul writes, let all of us who are mature think this way. The life of a Christian is spent in pursuit of Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is what it means, what it sounds like. It means to be like Christ in every way. Is he, is Jesus patient and kind? Well, so are those who are Christ-like. Does Jesus hate sin and war against it in, in his church? So do those who are Christ-like. If it's true of Jesus, then more and more each day, it should be true of those who are becoming like Christ. The whole goal of everything we do as a church is to help each other, lead each other to become like Jesus. At least I hope so. Even the missions and evangelism that we pursue are just the first steps of discipleship towards Christ-likeness. And if you're not sure about that, well, Paul says it right here in verse 15. God will reveal this to you. Paul offers us his humble light as an apostle of the light, Christ. Paul was only worth following so long as he followed Christ. The moment that Paul began to deny Christ, to preach another gospel, he would have been no longer 
worthy of following. And that could be said of any pastor, any elder, any teacher. Having given the Philippian believers, these citizens of heaven, an example of living as light in the world, Paul now turns his attention to a grave warning that should get our full attention. It is a warning about the darkness of the enemies of the cross. In verses 18 and 19, he issues this warning. Now, despite clearly going after Judaizers earlier in this chapter, and Judaizers are those who sought to reimpose the burden of the law, um, despite that, the identity of these enemies of the cross is not exactly clear. Now, maybe that's a good thing, because opponents of the cross tend to fall into one of two broad categories, either Jews, Judaizers, or Gentiles. In other words, those who seek to add to or subtract from what Jesus did on the cross. Judaizers tend to add to the gospel. This is sometimes called Jesus and or Jesus plus. Now, don't worry, that's not another streaming service you have to sign up for. But from this perspective, the cross isn't enough. Something more has to be added. Salvation can't just be a gift, they say. You have to put some sweat equity into it. On the other end of the spectrum are the Gentiles. They take away from the gospel. They have antinomian tendencies. That is, uh, if Jews and Judaizers are legalists, insisting on the supremacy of the law, then Gentiles are the opposite. They would say, well, Jesus died for your sins? Great. Then go out and live as you please. I mean, the bill's been paid. You've got daddy's credit card. But both approaches, both ways are enemies of the cross. And Paul wants to warn us of their intrinsic darkness by pointing out four things about them. First, Paul begins, with, in verse, begins verse 19 saying their end is destruction. Their end is is destruction. This is a fatal result. Two paths, one destination. Whether by denying the power of the cross, by relying on their own self-justification, as the Judaizers did, or by resisting any limitations on their own self-gratification, as the Gentiles did, both spurn the cross so they can remain the gods of their own lives. Paul ran his race for the prize of knowing Christ and receiving the reward of eternal life, enjoying him forever. The enemies of the cross receive the due penalty of their respective ways. That is, the righteous judgment of eternal death separated from the goodness of God forever, only to face his wrath and justice. So question for you, question for each of these. Where is your life headed? As you examine yourself, who you are, how you live, where is your life headed? Towards the same fatal result? I pray not. Paul's next charge is is that the enemies of the cross worship themselves by serving their own appetites. In other words, they are their own false god. He cites the stomach, but this is likely an umbrella term for any bodily desire. The accusation may sound familiar. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul wrote there, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Again, turning either to the left, let's call that the Gentiles' way, or to the right, let's call that the Judaizers' way, Both ways will get you lost because they are not the narrow way that Jesus said few would find. Specific to Paul's example here, the Judaizers made made a God of their stomachs by idolizing their adherence to dietary laws and indeed all the laws they, they followed. Gentiles went the other way in gluttony and debauchery. So the question here is, who is your God? Who is your God, your creator and redeemer, or your body and its desires? Next, Paul talks about a futile glory, a futile glory. Something that is futile is useless, right? It's a waste. All human beings are created for the glory of God. That's our purpose. 
No, really, literally for that reason, that's our reason for living. Anything else then is futile. Perhaps especially our own glory derived from the very things that should shame us is futile. Judaizers glorified themselves by their devotion to the law. Paul called that dung in verse 8. Dung being the polite word for it. Gentiles brag about their sin. There is no shame. Recall Paul's warning to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about them being actually proud of their tolerance and celebration of sin amongst themselves. So we need to avoid this futile glory, which leads us to that question. Who or what is your glory? What do you celebrate? Remember, only what is done for Christ will last. Last, we see that the enemies of the cross don't just think about earthly things, they are focused on them. This is a fallen focus. Doesn't this just sum up the previous two characteristics of worshiping their desires and seeking their own glory? In his letter to the Colossians, Paul challenges us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So where is your focus? What occupies your waking hours, your pursuits, your devotion? The enemies of the cross, whether they add to the gospel or take away from it, are to be avoided and never imitated. The only reason to heed Paul's invitation to imitate himself and those who follow his example is because he and they follow Christ. All of this really leads us to a moment of self-reflection. Are we enemies of the cross or emissaries of the cross? As Paul continues in verse 20, we see he points us to the hope of our true citizenship. This is where Paul brings us to the portion, this portion of the letter to a close by sharing another encouragement for us. As Pastor Jason shared with us last week, there is good reason Paul kept talking about citizenship. If you haven't listened to that message yet, I encourage you to go back to listen to that, to learn more about the history of the city of Philippi, why citizenship was such a big deal. But the bottom line is a reminder is that the people of Philippi probably felt about belonging to their city like most, if not all of us, feel about being Americans, having that earthly citizenship. Nevertheless, Paul reminded them and now reminds us that our true citizenship is in heaven and our Savior isn't a politician, isn't a celebrity, it's Jesus. And as Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 reminds us, those who live by faith in Christ are aliens and strangers in this world. That's how citizens of heaven become lights in the world. We're Christ's ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation. We're emissaries of the king, offering forgiveness and restoration to any and all rebels who will lay down their arms and submit themselves to his good and rightful rule. Keeping his focus on eternity, Paul calls his readers' attention to another aspect of the reward that awaits believers, a transformed, glorious body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 49, he writes this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also 
bear the image of the man of heaven. The resurrected bodies of believers will be like Jesus' body. I told you the point of this pursuit was Christ-likeness, physically as well as spiritually. Paul calls us to keep our focus on eagerly awaiting for a Savior from our true home. So let me ask you, are you eagerly waiting for your Savior from there? No, no, no. I'm talking about a six-year-old looking forward to Christmas morning, eagerly waiting for the Savior, okay? That's the standard, where every moment you're like, oh, how many hours? How many days? Of course, we don't have that clock. We don't have that, but we can have that spirit, right? We can have that mindset. Maranatha! Hey, it's okay. We don't, we don't have to just say that at the end of a worship service, right? That, that's our mindset, right? Every moment of every day, we're, we've got an eye on the sky. We're looking, we're waiting, we're anticipating the return of Christ, which could happen any moment. That's why we say that at the end of our worship services, by the way, in case you're relatively new here and you're like, where did this come from? It comes from a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul uses the word, and the word literally means, hey, come soon, come right away. So that's what we cry to Jesus at the end of a service is, Maranatha, come, because we're eagerly waiting for our Savior. Enemies of the cross dismiss or even dread that day. Emissaries of the cross long for it like a thirsty deer pants for water. Now, maybe you think all of this talk of eternity is for someone else. Maybe you're young, you're fit, maybe you just think you're lucky. Or maybe you think you have all the time in the world to share the hope of Christ with your neighbor, your family, coworkers, that, those kinds of folks. You know, I came across a, a pretty good little story that may change your mind, if that's how you're thinking about this. It's the story of a man, and, and while he was walking on the beach, he found a used magic lamp, Okay? couple of wishes gone. But he rubbed it anyway, and uh, the genie emerged, and he said, look, you know, there's only one wish left, just so you know. And so the man thought about it a moment, and then he asked the genie for this. He said, I want the financial section of my local newspaper with all the stock prices from one year from now. And so, poof, the, magi- the smoke filled the air, the genie went away, and there where the genie had been was a copy of the financial section from his newspaper for one year from that day. And so he, he sat right down, he started diving into it, he's like, well, you know, looking at, okay, which, which stocks were going to do well? And then he put the paper down, flipping it to the back side. You know what was on the back side of all the stock prices? The obituaries. And the name at the top of the obituaries caught his attention, and you know why. It was his name. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are on a mission, but you don't know how much time you have left to complete it. If you are not a follower of Christ, then you are missing out on the greatest gift anyone will ever give you. And let me tell you, it is a limited time offer. All this brings us to Paul and to his last few important points of application. Citizens of heaven, emissaries of the cross, will live as lights in the world as they do three things. In chapter 4, Philippians it's two through nine is where we are. We do three things. First, we sustain our brightness. Lights in the world sustain their brightness with unity. In verses two and three, he deals with a tricky situation, some conflict between these two women. Unity has been an ongoing theme for Paul in this letter. If you were here last week, if you did hear that message, you know that Pastor Jason raised the issue last week based on that text and we do the same here. In fact, it is possible that Paul had been building up to this point of application all along. Remember, 
Due to both low literacy levels and the scarcity of written copies, the most common way an early Christian was going to encounter a letter like this was for it to be read publicly at a gathering of the church. Did you know that? They didn't have 20 different Bibles and 17 different translations and so forth. They didn't have all of that, these nice bound books that we have now. They might have a few handwritten, hand-copied copies. Many of them would not be able to read them anyway. And so in a church service, they would have the Bible read for them. And so Paul expected both of these women to be present to hear the letter where he was calling them out. And I don't know, maybe the church leaders spoke to these women ahead of time. Hey, just so you know, Paul's latest letter, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, Whether they did that or not, Paul here was not taking sides. He wanted both of these women who he called, he said they had contended for the gospel at my side. But he wanted them to be reconciled. He wanted this because he cared for them. And he wanted this because he cared for the credibility of the gospel which was at stake. Just before this in verse 1, Paul challenged all his readers, and that includes us, to in this manner stand firm in the Lord. Most often, Christians are called to stand firm together. This sustains the brightness of our witness to the watching world. I met a friend for coffee yesterday morning, and when I walked into the establishment, there were two women talking, and one woman was telling the other about a third woman follow this, okay? And this is what she said about this third person who was not present. They said, she has an infectious joy about her. Every time I'm with her, there's just something about her. There's this infectious joy about her. And I wondered to myself, listening to this conversation, I wonder if she's talking about a Christian. I truly hope so. Because both Christians both because Christians should be the most infectiously joyous people anyone will ever meet. We have the greatest reason to be infectiously joyous. But also because that joy gave this third woman who wasn't present great influence with others. And that's not a power I would want to see used for evil. Secondly, Paul says we are to radiate by rejoicing in the Lord. In contrast to the darkness of the world around us, we are lights in the world when we radiate by rejoicing in the Lord. Our joy doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from a characteristic of our personality. It's not just something for people who are popular or whatever. It comes from the Lord. And Paul says this happens in three ways that I would just briefly deal with. In verse 5, he describes what I would characterize grace-powered graciousness. Our joy radiates through our grace-powered graciousness. We can be gracious to others because God has poured out his grace on us. There's no reason to hide this. And don't overlook Paul's next words, the Lord is near. The word used for near here refers to both space and time. Listen, Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We can have joy and share that joy because we know he's with us. We don't have to wonder. But it also refers to time. And as we were recently considering with the Olivet Discourse, his return is imminent. And it could happen at any time. Next, Paul says our joy radiates through a reliance on God. Prayer at its core is about faith, and faith is about reliance on God. We don't just go to our Heavenly Father with our proverbial shopping lists. We do it with thanksgiving for how He's already blessed us, but we go to Him. Prayer is an exercise in relying on God. Third, Paul says that anyone uh, who relies on God that way will radiate peace that can't be explained or comprehended any other way but God. That peace, Paul says, will guard our hearts and minds in the source of that peace, Jesus himself. So if you want to radiate that joy, if you want people to talk about you the way those women were talking about this this third person, 
grace, you can do so through grace-powered graciousness, reliance on God, and peace that passes understanding so that others who know you, know what you're going through in your life, can see, wow, that person has something I don't. What do they have? Finally, Paul says that those who seek to be lights in the world, citizens of heaven, they do as they dwell. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, he gives them a a, a list of, of things. So let's consider that briefly here. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, all this sounds great. I appreciate Paul's humility and his efforts to inspire me, you know, joining him to pursue Christ, but I just can't seem to get around the corner. There's, there's still a lot that discourages me. There's things that hinders me from running the kind of race Paul is running. Listen, I understand that. There are times that I could say the same thing. But that's what makes Paul's closing words to us so effective. He says, in order to live as lights in the world, we must do as we dwell. And Paul gives a list of things to dwell on, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, things with moral excellence, things that are praiseworthy. Now, the impact of dwelling on those kinds of things is transformative. That which preoccupies us usually ends up shaping us. You've found this to be true, right? The things that you spend your time pondering, focusing on, thinking of of over and over again, those are the things that tend to shape you, how your day goes, how your week goes. All of those things, it shapes who we are. Think about it from the other direction. What happens when we do the opposite? What happens when we dwell on lies, on what is dishonorable, on what's unjust? What happens when we focus on things that are filthy, not pure, things that are horrific, not not, uh, lovely? When we focus on things that are shameful, things with moral bankruptcy, or things that are unspeakable? Is it any wonder that the the world around us is the way it is as it focuses on all of those things? That's why Paul is calling us to the exact opposite. He's doing that in part also because Jesus is all of the things Paul lists. Jesus is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. Jesus is not just morally excellent. excellent, He is moral perfection. He's not just praiseworthy. He's worthy of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. Insert amen here. Thank you. It will just, this is what will happen if we will just follow Paul's divinely inspired wisdom. We will find ourselves right behind him, right behind Paul, pursuing Christ with all that we are and blazing that trail for others to follow behind us. A citizen of heaven who lives in these ways will be a light in the world. Uh, as, we, as my wife and I were raising our daughter, we had the peculiar joy of going to cross-country meets. Anybody else? Cross-country meets. It's, it's a little bit different. You see, we had raised a softball player. Can I get a Hallelujah. We had raised a softball player. We had invested hundreds of dollars in equipment and travel team and little league and all this stuff. And then she gets to high school and somewhere, I think it was her sophomore year, she decides, yeah, she still played softball for a little while longer, but she was like, I want to run. I want to I run. Now, why does a budding asthmatic with allergies join the cross-country team. I'll give you a clue. His name was Zach. She was chasing a boy. Thankfully, the boy became a man who became her husband, but she was chasing a boy. And she was running and all that. So here's the thing about cross-country meets. Unlike softball games that we were accustomed to, where, oh man, we had to pay attention, where she was catching pitching, okay, oh, she's up to bat. Cross-country meets, you, uh, you, you start at the start line, right? 
And you're like, all right, you know, go, go. You know, you know. So the starter fires the gun. They're off and running. You're cheering loudly. Hey, go, go, go. All right. Then usually somewhere into the woods, they would disappear or around the corner. And you don't see them for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. It kind of depends on the runner. And you don't see them. So you might, you might take a short walk over to where they've got the finish line set up, right? You might have a chat with another parent. You might take a phone call, you know, maybe a short nap. And then, okay, they're starting to come back, right? And so you're there. You're ready. And now the runners are starting to approach the finish line. And this is where I learned something completely new to me. Do you know what you say to a runner as they're approaching the finish line, as they're coming to the very end there? Kick. I'm like, I, the first time I heard that, I'm like, why, why are we yelling kick? This isn't soccer. You know, why, why are we? But the idea was, you know, to tick, kick, to dig into the ground, to give it that extra oomph. And so I found myself on a number of occasions every fall going, kick, Megan, kick, kick, come on, kick, girl. That's what Paul's been doing us, doing for us here this morning. He is saying to each and every one of us, keep going. Kick. Kick, Leonardtown Baptist. Kick. Don't give up. Reach for that finish line. Press forward for what's ahead. Leave everything else behind. Give everything else up. Pursue Christ with everything you have. As if he's the only one that matters. Because guess what? He is. And when you do that, when you hear that encouragement to kick and kick and kick, Paul says the prize you will have is Christ himself. That's what you're after. Not a bigger portfolio. Not the house as nice as everybody else has. Not all the other things we tend to dream of and obsess over and consume ourselves with. If, you, if we do that, we will be lights in the world. We will people, be people worth following to Christ himself. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your words from your servant Paul here this morning. We thank you that he took the time to write these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so we would hear that encouragement. Lord, that we were not pursuing perfection. The perfection belongs to your son. And one day when we cross the finish line into eternity, we will be glorified. We will be given that final measure of his perfection and we will enjoy eternity without the burdens of sin, without the darkness and hopelessness that pervades our world now. But until that day, Lord, through your servant Paul, you are encouraging us, kick, kick, keep going, reach forward for the finish line, because the finish line is Christ. Lord, may we reevaluate everything else about our lives by that standard. And may we find ourselves day by day shedding and discarding the things that we hold so tightly. And may we instead take hold of Christ who has already taken hold of us, just like Paul. Lord, we pray that you would allow this for each and every one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.